Hello and welcome to IT Conversations, a series of interviews with experts in today's hot topics in information technology. I'm your host, Doug Kay, and my guest today is author, programmer, and programming language architect, Paul Graham. In 1995, working with Robert Morris, Paul built what was arguably the first major web-based application, ViaWeb, which was acquired by Yahoo in 1998 and became Yahoo Stores. In 2002, he described a simple Bayesian spam filter that has inspired many of today's spam filtering packages. Paul is also the author of two books on Lisp and, most recently, a very different book entitled Hackers and Painters, published by O'Reilly & Associates. Hello, Paul. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Paul, you know, one of the things that uh, you're allowed to title a book, Hackers and Painters, because as I look in your resume, you've actually studied painting in Europe. That's something you don't talk a lot about, but uh, tell us a little bit about how someone with such a strong technical background got involved with painting. Well, I realized um, that what I liked about computers was not, you know, computer science in the sense of studying them and figuring out, you know, what one might do sort of mathematically. Um, What I liked was making stuff. Um, And that's what painters do, too. They make stuff. Um, And they make stuff that is sort of, to many people, more colorful and maybe more interesting than software. So um, it it was just a natural, naturally exciting kind of thing to do to go paint. How did you get started with painting? Was it something you did as a child? Uh, no, actually, I didn't. Not not particularly, not any more than other kids did. Um, what happened was I went to visit a friend of mine who was a graduate student at Carnegie Mellon. Um, and in the afternoon, I went down the hill to the Carnegie Museum, which is actually a great museum. Um, and I was walking around. It was, it was like a weekday in the middle of the day. There wasn't really anybody else there. And... Uh, I saw, you know, I could really see the paintings without, I mean, without this big crowd of people. And I thought, you know, these weren't made by some mysterious, like, other group of people called artists, like some other tribe. These, I could do this. I could make these, too, if I wanted to, if I tried hard enough. And wouldn't that be a great thing to do? Um, it was this sort of epiphany. Um, so I was, I was really, was, and in fact am, uh, really untalented, but as in hacking, hard work counts for an awful lot in painting. (laughs) And so I thought if I worked hard enough, I could paint well. Um, And that's what I tried to do. Are you still painting? No, actually, I haven't painted anything for a couple of years, I don't think, maybe a year and a half. Um, And that's one reason I don't talk much about painting itself in Hackers and Painters, because I don't really consider myself to be a painter. I consider myself to be someone who is trained in painting, right? And, you know, there are a lot of people who are trained in one thing but do something else. You know, there are a lot of people who are sort of trained in math, but what they actually do is physics, right? Um, there are a lot of people out there who are trained as painters but don't work as painters because there are a lot of kids who go to art school and very few opportunities to make money painting. Well, Hackers and Painters is quite an eclectic book. It's quite unusual, in fact, to be published by O'Reilly. It's in hardcover, no less. It, it appears that it's a collection of essays you've written over some period of time. Is there a, a singular concept that binds these various essays that uh, uh, caused you to put them together in a single book? Well, I suppose, yeah, there is kind of a theme running through them all, which is um, about hackers, you know, um, meaning really good programmers, what they're really good programmers do. So some essays are specifically about hackers, like, you know, what is what is the hacker ethic? That's what the, the chapter Good Bad Attitude is about. And then others are about um, the things hackers do, like 
you know, care a lot about programming languages or write web-based applications and stuff like that. It's the kind of book that someone who's is or really wants to be a very good programmer would find talked about things they had probably wondered about. The first chapter of the book really caught me by surprise. It wasn't what I expected given the title of the book. This chapter is entitled Why Nerds Are Unpopular, and it's a fairly personal analysis of what it's like to be a nerd in junior high school. Why did you write this chapter? What's What was the message you were trying to get across, and who are you writing this for? The, the people I really wrote that for is high school kids now. Um, you know, I wanted to write something that would tell them what I wish I'd known at the time. And, you know, when you're a kid, people just sort of hand you this kind of life you're supposed to live on a plate and say, here, eat this, you know. And, you you know, you're used to being told what to do all the time, and you never consider that, in fact, the adults might actually be kind of clueless sometimes and give you the wrong stuff, right? Um, and so the life that we give teenagers to lead now is actually terribly broken um, because because of some things that have happened, you know, in the economy. Teenagers are economically not all that useful now, but you have to do something with them, and so you sort of store them in this warehouse for their teenage years until they're old enough to be trusted in college, right? And and this ends up producing this, this life that's just disastrous to live in. It just feels really terrible. Um, and they even have this excuse about why you feel so terrible. It's hormones, right? <laughs> but, you know, you never hear any mention of hormones before the 20th century. Um, you never hear any of this, any references to this idea that all teenagers are supposed to be crazy. So I think there's something else that makes teenagers feel so unhappy and so crazy, and that is the weirdness of high school. And merely, merely knowing, merely knowing that there's something terribly wrong should make them feel better. It's like, you know, you're walking around... And you feel, oh, my God, I feel terrible. What's going on with me? And then you take your temperature and you have a temperature of 102. Well, that explains why you have a headache, right? Is your sense that it's fairly specific to American culture in the 20th and 21st centuries? Well, I've gotten a lot of emails from people all over the world saying, wow, it's just like this in my country, too. I've had so much email about this. I mean, literally, probably 2,000 emails about this. I think it's worse in America, but it's just fundamentally the same problem everywhere. Is there a solution? Do you see something that we as a society can do to alleviate this problem? Because there's a there's a lot of pain and suffering going on during those years. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, look at the, the root of the problem. One, one root of the problem is that everybody is stuck together in one place with nothing to do. So one possible solution is this Stuyvesant kind of solution where you take – you have different kinds of high schools for kids who are interested in different things and the nerds who are interested in, you know, the sciences and so on go to special high schools like Stuyvesant in New York, magnet schools. Um, that would make it a little better. Another thing that would make it better is if teenage kids did actually have something to do. Everybody thinks, you know, they need to, they need to be idle somehow that, you know, 17-year-olds can't do anything. But um, it might be that 17-year-olds could do something. <laughs> Uh, and, and that all these laws that are intended to protect kids from child labor, maybe that they're not actually saving them from something they need to be saved from, you know? The second chapter of the book, which is in fact entitled Hackers and Painters, draws parallels between hacking and painting. Uh, in what ways do you think that programming is more like painting than it is like some of our more common metaphors, such as engineering? One big difference between painting and engineering is engineers, you know, in, in 
buildings, for example, there's this distinction between architects and engineers, right? Architects decide what the building's going to look like, basically, and then they say to an engineer, can I do this? <laughs> you know, and if so, how, right? And the engineer figures out how. Um, so architects figure out what, engineers figure out how. Well, painters do both. Painters decide what to paint and then have to paint it, right? Um, and hackers, at least in the best case, also do both. They're not merely engineers who just figure out how. The great hackers decide what and then figure out how. Um, and in fact, the two, the two can influence one another in a cycle in the best case. In the best case, you figure out how by try, you figure out what by trying various hows, you know? Now, you particularly, I, I noticed, disliked the term computer science. Why is that? Oh, I always felt so cheesy saying it. You know, I still feel people, you know, say you have a PhD in what? And I say in computer science. I mean, maybe it was because I was an undergraduate at Cornell where they had all these departments like poultry science and food science. It seems like when you have some kind of field that's not, <laughs> not really a field yet, you like stick some noun onto the word science and that's what you call your field. Maybe I'm going to get in a lot of trouble with people in poultry science for saying this. Well, it's an often debated topic, you know, whether it's computer science uh, as opposed to another term, which is software engineering. People take exception to that, too. Well, here's another term. Look at what Knuth did. Arguably, if anybody knows what the story is with computers, it's Don Knuth. And he seems to have very pointedly called his big series of books the art of computer programming. I don't think that was a coincidence. Continuing on the theme of understanding hacking and, and hackers, you wrote that empathy is probably the single most important difference between a good hacker and a great one. Yeah. What is empathy in this context, and why is it so important for you? Well, empathy means putting yourself in the other person's position, um, in particular, the user of your software. Um, and hackers don't often, don't always realize this, because often they design software for which they themselves are the typical user, right? So if you're designing a compiler or an editor, at least an editor of the types that programmers use, like Emacs, or an operating system or something like that, then you're designing stuff for yourself, and it's okay. You don't have any difficulty putting yourself in the other person's position. But if you want to design anything beyond those few kinds of tools that programmers use, you have to be able to see what the user is going to think when he approaches your program. And this is very different from what you'll think, because you wrote it and you understand everything, right? So you have to be able to put yourself in the position of someone who has no idea what he's going to get when he sits down and tries to use your program. Is there a technique for doing that? How how can you um, how can you train someone to be empathetic? Or is there a way that you can determine that someone's empathetic before hiring them, for example? Well, a lot of people get trained in empathy as kids, right? This is why parents are always telling you, you know, look at it from their point of view. <laughs> Right? That's what they're trying to teach you, not to be this sort of um, solipsist. Uh, a lot of people never manage to learn that as kids. I think empathy is something that is largely an aptitude. I mean, you can help people learn it, but there's, there's also a large ingredient of just inherent aptitude and empathy. Some people are naturally empathetic and some people aren't. Um, the weird thing is it seems like people in the sciences may be naturally less empathetic than other people, which is a problem because, you know, that's the, the world hackers are in. Many of the lessons you learned about both programming and business are from your experiences building and then selling BioWeb. For example, you wrote... When we interviewed programmers, the main thing we cared about was that kind of was the kind of software that they wrote in their spare time. Yeah, um, I, I can see that. But tell me a little bit more more about what you learn from 
interviewing someone and asking them about what they code when they're when they're not getting paid for it? Well, what you're mainly looking for, when or what we were mainly looking for, and what I think most people probably ought to be looking for when they hire programmers, is to find people who really love to program. Because not just for programming, but for anything, to do to be really good at something, um, you have to love to do it, right? And so anybody who loves to program is probably not going to be content with whatever random stuff they're told to do at work. They're probably going to have some great project of their own that they're working on. Um, so it's not so much you care about what the particular project is. What you care about is that they have one and that they're really into it, right? It almost doesn't matter what it is. I mean, it's cool if it's something interesting, um, especially if it's related to the kind of thing you want to hire them to do, but that doesn't matter. The main thing that matters is that they love to code. We found we knew after three or four minutes, really, whether we wanted to hire somebody. We would meet. We, we had three tests. One, were they really smart? Um, two, were they a really good programmer? Because there are plenty of people who are smart, but somehow or other don't end up translating it into being a good programmer, right? And three, could we stand them? Because <laughs> there are a lot of people who are really smart and really good programmers, but you just could not stand to talk to them for more than five minutes, right? Um, and so if they passed those three tests, really smart, really, program- really good programmer, and we could stand them, um, that was it. That was our, our, three, our three criteria. You ultimately did manage to sell ViaWeb to Yahoo. And when you wrote about that experience, uh, one of my favorite quotes came out. You wrote, I remember sitting back in the dentist chair, waiting for the drill and feeling like I was on vacation. <laughs> Tell us how you got to that point. Well, I had left a board meeting to go to the dentist. Um, and board meetings were always terribly painful. Um, it could be it was because I was a... a an ineffectual CEO and didn't manage things properly, but it, it seemed like our board meetings were just always the most rancorous arguments. Um, we got a reputation, actually, in the, in the Boston high-tech VC community as being some kind of dysfunctional startup, they called us. Um, but, you know, we may have argued a lot, but we were really, really, we made customers very, very happy, right? And that's what ends up mattering. I was really surprised to learn that ViaWeb was written in Lisp. Mm, well, it wasn't written entirely in Lisp. It was the editor that was written in Lisp. Um, the editor that the, that the merchants use to make their online stores is written in Lisp. The shopping basket that the, that the customers use to buy things from the online stores is written in C. Why is that? Why some and some? Well, they had to do very different things, right? Um, there had to be... There were, you know, for every the store, there were one or two orders of magnitude more shoppers, you know, uh, a lot more shoppers than there are merchants. And so the the shopping bag process had to be a really lightweight process, um, whereas it didn't have to do much, right? I mean, a shopping basket, you sort of, you put stuff in your shopping basket, right? And you look at the stuff in your shopping basket, and maybe you delete things from your shopping basket or change quantities or place your order, and that's about it, right? So it was not a huge program. It was small, and it had to be fast. Whereas the editor, you know, we tried to make feel like a WYSIWYG of what you see is what you get program, and that required some fancy tricks. Tell us a little bit about your long history with Lisp and and ultimately why you selected it for this project, for example. Uh, well, I selected this project partly because it was a really good language for writing programs and partly because I couldn't program in any other language except Lisp. <laughs> so, 
it was a slam dunk. Did you start with Lisp in school? Yeah, you know, I started learning Lisp in the early 1980s, uh, I think 1983, um, back when Lisp was supposed to be the language of artificial intelligence, which was a big thing then. Um, by the time I got to graduate school in 1986, I quickly realized that artificial intelligence was uh, a complete crock. Um, and so I thought, boy, you know, what can I salvage from the wreckage of all this stuff I've learned? What's actually good? And I thought, you know, what I really like about AI is Lisp hacking. Um, Lisp is really good, so I'll just concentrate on Lisp. So I sort of switched into working on programming languages. How did a major application, or at least a piece of an application written in Lisp, ever pass the technical due diligence uh, of the acquirers? Well, um, you know, we had all the users, right? We, by the time Yahoo bought us, we were by far the market leader in, in online store software. Um, so they would have had to, for, for their techie guys to say, oh, no, no, we can't buy these because they wrote the thing in Lyft. They would have to choose, if they were going to buy some kind of e-commerce software, they would have to buy one of our competitors who wrote their software in maybe a more palatable language, but in fact, because of that, had far fewer users, right? So they were forced to they were forced to make a decision about this. Um, but I think for Yahoo particularly, it was not as frightening as it might have been for other, for other buyers. And the reason was, think about where Yahoo came from. Jerry Yang and David Philo, the founders of Yahoo, were grad students in computer science at Stanford. Right? Who founded the, MI, the Stanford Computer Science Department? John McCarthy, the inventor of Lisp. Because they were, well, he also was one of the founders of the MIT Computer Science Department. I mean, John, and he invented time sharing. I mean, John McCarthy was one of the, like, big, you know, big geniuses of early computer science. Um, and so at these very high-end places like MIT and CMU and Stanford, there's a lot of lift going around, you know? Like, if you study computer science department at some community college in Oklahoma, they're going to teach you COBOL and Java. Um, but if you uh, if you go to like MIT or Stanford, it's it's Lisp and, and ML and languages like that. You mentioned COBOL and Java, and one of the things you wrote, I'm sure you know where I'm going with this. You referred to COBOL as an evolutionary dead end, a Neanderthal <laughs> language. Okay, that's that's fair enough. I don't think you'd get a lot of argument. But you also predicted a similar fate for Java. Yeah, which which has got to be one of your more controversial statements. Why why do you believe Java will follow in the footsteps of COBOL? Well, it was written with the same intentions. Um, I've found, looking at programming languages, that you can divide them into two classes. There are the languages that people wrote in order to use themselves to write software, right? And so C is the perfect example of this. Those guys at Bell Labs, they wanted to write system software. They needed a language to write Unix in. They made C for themselves. And they, sort of, they made that language good because they were the ones who were going to have to eat what they cooked, right? If you look at COBOL, COBOL was designed by a committee of, you know, smart people or people who believed they were smart to be used by dumb people. They were consciously thinking, we're going to make this language for ordinary schmoes to use, right? And that's how the designers of Java felt, too. They thought, you know, we want to make a language that looks familiar like C, because that's what lots of users are used to, and yet we're going to sort of piecemeal glom onto it some stuff from these more advanced languages like garbage collection, right, and dynamic allocation and stuff like that. So you end up with this, first of all, it's sort of a dumbed-down language designed for people not as smart as the designers, 
and it's sort of a Frankenstein language in the sense that they take something familiar and try and stick onto it some more advanced stuff. You know, if Java is not going to survive... Oh, I didn't say it wasn't going to survive. I said that it was going to be an evolutionary dead end, that it's going to have no intellectual descendants. Like COBOL, it will be, I mean, it's enormously popular, survive. I mean, it's the most popular language. It just replaced, you know what, COBOL as <laughs> the most popular language. It, it is the new COBOL. Um, I think Java will continue to be used for a long time and will be enormously popular, but it won't have any effect on programming languages. And when it does die, it won't have any sort of... Like COBOL, you know, COBOL wasn't replaced by the next COBOL. It was replaced by something completely different, Java. And the same thing will happen with Java. What interesting branches in the evolutionary tree are are we seeing developed today? I think Perl is actually very interesting. I mean, I have some reservations about Perl. But, you know, I look at it and I think, wow, that's an interesting idea. I mean, they have some very interesting ideas in there. And, you know, the language has a lot of stuff in it that's broken, but that's because they're trying to do new stuff, you know. I admire that. Following in the the genealogy of languages, you've got a new project. You're working on a language called ARC, which I admit I know nothing about. Tell, tell us a little bit about ARC, uh, why you're doing it, and what it's going to look like. Uh, it's a dialect of Lisp. Um, one of the unusual things about Lisp is that it has dialects, um, and that's because of something about its design. I mean, Lisp is, is, is a language. Lisp's definition as a language is that it has these sort of seven axioms, um, and out of those seven axioms, you can make all the rest. So anything that has these seven axioms is a dialect of Lisp. Um, so. It is a dialect of Lisp, like common Lisp in Scheme. Um, there hasn't been a new dialect of Lisp for a long time. The most recent was common Lisp in the mid-'80s. Um, and back in the mid-'80s, a language was a different kind of thing than it is now. Back in the mid-'80s, a language was merely a spec. So that's what common Lisp is, a specification. And so is Scheme. Um, but now... When, when people talk about a programming language, they mean something like Perl or Python or Ruby that's not just a spec, but an implementation with, like, new versions successfully, you know, and some people who are in charge of actually adding stuff to it. Um, so it's sort of, it's going to be a dialect of Lisp, but in the sort of new Perl, Python, Ruby model of what a programming language is instead of the old, you know, Pascal Fortran model where it's just a specification written down somewhere. What, what stage are you at with the development of the language? Well, I'm at two stages. Um, I have a fairly good implementation of an earlier definition of the language that I actually used to write programs. Um, in fact, that's where the whole spam filtering stuff came out of. I wrote this spam filter in order to make sure this language was actually good for writing programs, and the spam filter turned out to be really good. Um, so I wrote something about it, and a lot of other people wrote spam filters like it. Um, but also, simultaneously, I'm working on a new axiomatic core of the language. Um, I'm trying to do what McCarthy did in, in building up a language from axioms the same way Euclid did with geometry, but continue to all the data structures, I.O., everything you need in the language. Because in, in the old original Lisp, McCarthy just built up the sort of core of computation and then handed it to his graduate students, and no more theory from that point. They just took everything else from Algol. You mentioned the, the experiments you've done with uh, spam filtering. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Tell us what you learned and where you think that's all heading. Um, well, I don't think it's heading in any very different direction lately. Uh, 
what I learned is that a very, very simple statistical algorithm ends up being very good at spam filtering. Um, and this is a huge surprise to me. The simple statistical algorithm that I wrote first, I wrote because I always try and write software by writing the simplest possible thing first and then gradually add features to it, right? So this is supposed to be just a version one. Um, and I was, I thought that I would have to do something much more complicated to filter spam effectively. But when I tried it out on my accumulated spam, um, which I think then was the pathetically small amount of 4,000 spams, <laughs> I get that in about two days now. Um, I found it was it could filter out 99.5% of it. I was astonished. So I immediately sat down and wrote something, um, a plan for spam, actually. It's in the book uh, that talked about how this filter works and why I thought it was a good bet for the future. Um, and within days, people were writing open source implementations of this algorithm. And is it your sense that from what you see, that's the current best solution to spam? Yeah. In fact, most spam filters now, including, you know, the ones at AOL and Yahoo Mail and uh, probably Gmail, too, all use some variant of this algorithm. You know, I knew Google was up to something a year ago when I did a search for Bayesian on Google, um, and I got a help wanted ad from Google itself. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure Google's spam filter works this way, too. They'd be stupid not to. And thank God, thank God, despite Spammers' very vigilant efforts to try and get around these filters in the last year or so, they still work because I'm constantly worrying that spammers will figure out some way to get around Bayesian filters and then everyone will hate me for wasting all their time sending them down this, you know, ultimately mistaken path. Back to ARC for a moment. If someone's interested in following your work, are you publishing it online these days? Um, there's nothing on, on the web about ARC because I resolutely, I resolutely avoid being in the situation where people are always asking me, so what's new? What have you done last month? Right? Um, so if, if people are interested, they can go to my website and there's an email address they can send an email to and I'll tell them when something is ready and usable. But um, till there's something ready to use, I'm not going to put sort of progress reports on the web. Do you have a sense of when that might be, though? Well, you know, it could be years, um, because Lisp itself was invented in 1958, so um, I feel like people have waited over 40 years for a really good Lisp implementation in it. <laughs> you know, I don't mind if they have to wait for another two in order to make sure that it is actually really good. Well, Paul, I think I speak for many people that we look forward to the ultimate announcement of ARC, whenever that may be. Thanks for speaking with me today, Paul. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening to IT Conversations. This edition was recorded on July 13th, 2004. My guest has been Paul Graham. You'll find his personal website at www.paulgraham.com. My name is Doug Kay, and I hope you'll join me next time for another edition of IT Conversations. Thank you.